I invite you to be turning to 1 Corinthians 15, which is one long chapter from Paul, all about the topic of the resurrection. Earlier in our series, we looked at Romans 8 and the agonizing weight of creation. The work that Jesus started in us still has yet a completion to come about. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he tells them that God has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. A down payment, in other words, more to come. (laughs) And he expands on this idea of down payment in the fifth chapter of the letter. He says, for I know, or for we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. What is the Holy Spirit a down payment of? A heavenly dwelling. What does that heavenly dwelling look like? Well, if the Holy Spirit resurrects our spiritual life from death to life, What is this a down payment of? How are we more fully, completely resurrected from death to life? That's what Paul told the Corinthians about in his first letters, and it's actually what we'll be studying today. So also, just by a uh, way of reminder, this Advent season, if you're wondering why we look like Christmas, but we're not looking at Joseph, Mary, or baby Jesus in the manger... We're going through a study on the second advent of Christ whenever he returns. His bodily, physical return for a consummation in this era of history as we know it. A very proverbial end of the world where finally injustice and evil and sin are all finally done away with. We'll talk about that in our text too. And righteousness reigns. Those in Christ live forever. I invite you to stand, if you're able to, this morning in honor of reading the Lord's Word in 1 Corinthians 15. I know we just read all of it. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of it again. But we will read the first three verses. Begin, beginning with verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Let's pray. Father, we do a lot of studying today. Sometimes our heads hurt thinking. (laughs) But you didn't put these things in our Bibles for just a certain select few people to read them and understand them. You, you've given us your word and you've 
especially in this day and age, given your word to many, many people. May we take complete hold of your word and understand it. Father, whatever it is you desire to say through these words from Paul that you gave to the Corinthian church and are also giving to us, we pray that it would do a work in our hearts and our lives, that we would respond accordingly. Father, we want to hear your voice, though, not mine. So we ask that you would remove me and say what it is that you desire so that we might love and serve you more and better and we might love and serve others just as well. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, this entire chapter is on the topic of the resurrection. And what Paul opens with generally in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the doctrine of the resurrection is essential to the gospel. It's a benchmark of the gospel because we don't bank our hope on Christ the corpse on the cross, but rather Christ who experienced the cross died and then rose again. Paul makes mention of who Christ appeared to according also to Paul himself. Paul makes the logical argument that resurrection and belief in it is essential to faith. If there is no resurrection, then what are we preaching on? What are we banking our hopes on? What are we even doing following Jesus and preaching all the things He wants us to if it makes no difference after we die? Rather, Paul then begins making his hard assertion that there is resurrection. In fact, in these first three verses here, he sets out the general themes of what the rest of the text we study contains. Hear with me again, verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the point here is that Paul is saying Christ's resurrection is a foreshadow. More than just a visible example of what those who have fallen asleep, that is, Christians can expect. It's a foreshadow. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in uh, Adam all dies, so also in Christ all will be made alive. I see three general themes here first. First, we, we see Christ first. <laughs> that's verse 20, and that's what Paul will also first expand on as we go on. Secondly, we see a theme of examples from nature. Now, Paul talks briefly here about the natural occurrence of a man dying. In Adam, all men die. But Paul will later um, expand on natural observations and how we might deduce, if you will, the reality of, of resurrection from them. And then finally, Paul brings up both Adam and Christ, a representative of natural birth and then a representative of spiritual birth. We'll talk about that later. But that's the general trajectory of our study. But Paul also throws in one other topic. He makes, he begins to talk about the present ramifications of our belief in the resurrection. And that's for those of us who get bogged down by theology and ask, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> So you're welcome. Paul has you covered as well. So first of all, Christ first, verses 23 through 28, we read, 
but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all and power. First he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. And that's the subject. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to do that. Many of you have told me that, like me, perhaps to this prior to this preaching series, you never knew that historically and traditionally churches would look at the second advent of Christ around Christmas time. Like me, all your church experience has probably been with churches who and pastors who talk about the first advent, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, angels, wise men, shepherds, um, around Christmas time. But I was thinking that for me, this illustrates something about good old-fashioned Bible-believing Christians. And I love being categorized as one, but that we focus a lot on the Word. We love the Word, and we want to be saturated in the Word that sometimes, at least I can start to lose focus or diminish or minimize the reality of what is to come. This is a delicate situation. I, for one, will never be able to say that I finally got all of this figured out. (laughs) No, rather I hope and plan on reading this and likely taking notes and learning from it until the day I die. But our faith is not an ancient reality. It's a timeless reality. By definition, timeless means it's timely now, and it will be timely in the future. The things that happen in here did happen in history, but they have ramifications and implications for now, because God is still ruling and reigning. God is still intervening in the history of mankind that's playing out before us. He still has a plan and a will, and He still executes it. But... Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Now that's in the, the Bible, that's what we read about. But then afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's yet to happen. That could be in our lifetime or long after we die. God is God yesterday, today, and forever. The fact that Paul is arguing for resurrection primarily and preeminently because of Christ's resurrection, should cause us to consider Christ's resurrection, in my mind, right? Later, Paul's going to use terms like a natural man and a spiritual man to describe the bodies we have now and the ones we have in the resurrection. Now, does that mislead any of you like it did me? The English was misleading me because I thought Paul might be saying natural as in physical, tangible flesh, bones, and skin and then spiritual as in ghostly or translucent, you know, or spirit. But let's consider how Christ is after He resurrected. I think Luke, who is both both a first-rate historian and a physician, exactly knew exactly that this sort of question might be proposed. Look at how he meticulously answers this in his account of the resurrected Jesus. We look in Luke 24... 
And we see, first of all, as they, the disciples, were saying these things, he, Jesus, himself, stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace to you. It's interesting, as John kind of records the same scenario with some other words, John says in John twenty nineteen, When it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. So already I, I see some supernatural elements to Jesus' resurrected body. Did he, did he walk through that locked door? Or was he translucent? Did he just appear to them? <laughs> However he did it, Luke continues back in his account, in Luke 24, but they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. <laughs> now there is the uh, question, are resurrected people ghosts? Not material? Well, here's what Jesus says. Why are you troubled, he asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. Well, Christ seems to say that at least he, in his resurrected state, is more than immaterial. He is more than translucent spiritual matter. Verse 40, having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. So we see that Christ resurrected fresh and (laughs) (laughs) flesh and blood. (laughs) He eats. (laughs) He's fresh out of the oven, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Indeed... Christ has actually said about his kingdom, it's going to be a big table and a big meal is being prepared where the faithful will come and dine at table and eat with the patriarchs. So I guess we're going to be eating in the future. (laughs) A few bullet point things that we can draw out here. First of all, there is a supernatural or superhuman, if you will, element to Christ. He stood among them. He likely appeared since in the post-resurrection stories of Jesus, he seems to appear and then also vanish. Second thing that we see, more than a ghostly material, Christ says that he is flesh and blood and he can be touched. So, in other words, what we would consider to be a real body, if you will. Thirdly, like humans, Jesus can and seems to want to eat. Some say, oh, he's doing it just to prove to them that he's truly resurrected. Even so, he's eating. That's the point. And then something for consideration. I don't know how relevant it will be for us when we resurrect. But fourthly, Jesus is visible to the disciples. Now, if we're all resurrected and nobody is left around with earthly natural bodies, maybe that's irrelevant to our situation. But I present this fact that Jesus, in a resurrected state, is visible. And he also seemed to be able to decide when to be visible to persons who hadn't died and resurrected themselves and had the resurrected body. I bring this all up because our primary text says that Christ is the first fruits of those who at his coming belong to Christ. One of my study Bibles says it pretty cut and dry. The term first fruits refers to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. Therefore, Christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what those of believers will be like. So, 
My reasoning, if you follow, is what we see of the resurrected Christ in the gospel accounts may very well point to the qualities of our resurrected bodies. This happens, quote, verse 23, at his coming. Now, with the immediate context, I'm assuming that Paul is talking about his second or his final coming. We also see again in verse 24, then comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Well, I look around and I believe that there are rule and authorities and powers that are not yielded to Christ ruling over us. Some, so this time still awaits. Plus, we know that the enemy of death has not been abolished yet. It is abolished in Christ in a sense, but Paul seems to be talking about more generally death needs to be abolished. Who we are after we die, assuming we die before Christ's return, is not who we will always be. Scripture seems to indicate or imply that we are conscious as a soul after we die. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We get a body when Christ returns. Hebrews 12.23 that says, You and I, when we come together to worship God through Christ spiritually, we join the firstborn saints who have died before us, spiritually worshiping God right now. They seem to be present with Him spiritually, but at the end of time, they will receive a body like Christ. Revelation 6.9 talks about a sixth seal, or a, yeah, fifth seal, I think, in which Jesus, or which John says, the souls of martyrs who are living, breathing, and talking, they await real resurrection bodies. Death needs to be abolished before that happens. Real quickly, in verses 27 and 28, I didn't want to do this real quickly, but I already have a packed sermon for you. But it talks about Jesus being subject to God the Father. Now, we scratch our heads about the Trinity. We're, we're not talking here about dignity or value. We're talking about functionality. Maybe I should untangle myself. There we go. But just as men or husbands are heads of their household does not imply that women are somehow lesser. They are functionally created for a different purpose. So Jesus is not lesser to God. But functionally, he proceeds from the Father. He has authority on earth. But when his entire mission of Christ is accomplished, we will all be God's people. Now, I would love to explore this more with you, but again, for our purposes today, I think I'm going to just move on. Next, we discuss the present ramifications of the resurrection. This is where we exit the theological headache and we explore, why does this matter, Paul? (laughs) First of all, I'm rather laid back when it comes to end-time speculation. I do have my opinions like anyone, but I'm not really emotionally invested. I've met some people who, if you challenge some of their convictions, they accuse you of heresy. Meanwhile, I haven't been at the end of the world yet. (laughs) And I don't think you have either. So our guesses are about as concrete as guessing what the weather will be like a month from now on a Tuesday in Denmark. (laughs) Right? Like We have scriptures. We can speculate. 
But experience tells me that I've been wrong on scriptures before, sometimes very much so. Even so, our doctrine on the resurrection has some very present ramifications. Paul says in verse uh, 29, 39, 38. Did I skip ahead up here? There we go, verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Well, that makes complete sense. Let's move on. I'm just kidding. Um, Actually, let's stop and unpack this. Some of you might know that Mormons actually practice surrogate baptism. That is, some people will stand in as surrogates for dead relatives and will be baptized believing that they might help their chances or maybe uh, maybe they believe it will ensure that their dead relatives are indeed counted among the faithful, no question about it. I don't know. But this is perhaps one passage where they get that from. Is that what the Corinthian Christians are doing? Well, at first plain reading, maybe so. But one of my commentaries says at least 30 possible explanations have been given. And I don't know if that's because everybody's looking for this isn't what it means or if there are possible um, explanations. If this is surrogate baptism, as I just described, it is the only instance in all of Scripture and nowhere else is it addressed. And it could have been a Corinthian peculiarity that Paul didn't seem to morally or theologically make any statement about, but used in his argument. I have found another possible explanation, though, of what it is that I think I agree with more. Not just because I'm not Mormon, but because it makes more sense to me. Some other possible explanation actually utilizes other scriptures in comparison, and that is... Do you remember when John and James approach Jesus and they say they want to be the greatest? What does Jesus say to them? Jesus said to them, Mark 10, verse 38, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Or in Luke 12, 50, Jesus says of his mission, he says, But I have a baptism to undergo. How it consumes me until it is finished. How is Jesus talking about the term baptism here in these two instances? He's talking about facing the cross. And, in fact, Mark 10, Jesus would go on to say in the very next verse where we were just at, You will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. So more to the point, Jesus is likely talking about the cross in particular for him, but perhaps more generally martyrs deaths and suffering and dying for the cause of Christ. Many of the disciples did die on crosses as well. So taking into context Paul's next words here in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. It could be, and I'll just go as far and say as it could be, that Paul was using the phrase baptism similarly and is talking about this. Why are people risking their lives and dying martyrs' deaths? Why do martyrs face martyrdom for the cause of Christ if there is no resurrection? Does that make sense? And I believe that's why then Paul personalized it and said, why would I face death every day? In fact, I consider it one of the greatest testimonies or the validities of the truth of the gospel that all 12 of these disciples who left 
Jesus and fled in his hour returned, save Judas, of course, to profess faith in Christ and were willing to then die for it because they believed, along with everything else about Christ, that they would resurrect after they die. <clears throat> They're alive today worshiping him and they will return with resurrection bodies at the end of time. The resurrection should embolden us. As it emboldened Paul, he says, if I fought wild beasts, many people think that Paul is using the phrase derogatorily about enemies of the gospel, in Ephesus, as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. (laughs) If there is no afterlife period and if there's no resurrection in particular nothing matters here that's paul's point do not be deceived paul is saying it does matter here there is an afterlife there is a resurrection bad company corrupts good morals come to your senses and stop sinning for some people are ignorant about god i say this to your shame in these two verses 33 and 34 Paul directly connects how ethics is a result of theology. It seems the Corinthians had really bought into the possibility of no resurrection. And if that is the case and nothing matters after we die, this will naturally lead to selfishness. It will naturally lead to the idea, I need to get personally all I can out of life. And thus, sin ensues. And it has eternal ramifications. That's a major point of the Bible. That's why Christ came and died in the first place. You know, it's interesting that in Romans, Paul is arguing against cheap grace, or the idea that God died for my sins so I can sin all I want. And here Paul is arguing against meaningless grace. (laughs) He came and lived and he died for my sins, but really it doesn't mean that much if I don't resurrect in the end. You do. There is life after death. Stop sinning. That's Paul's point. Paul moves on to see the idea of resurrection present in nature. The Bible tells us that creation is used by God to speak to us. I think I brought this up in my doctrine series, but there was a passage in Job 12 where Job says, Ask the animals and they will instruct you. Ask the birds of the sky and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will instruct you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Or we think about Jesus' parables. He used many things in nature. Sheep, trees, seeds, fish. Um, Our Creator has order in creation, but then He also uses creation to reflect and glorify the biggest drama or story or occasion of all human history, and that is the redemption of humanity. Paul taps into some of the examples about, or from nature, about the nature of redemption. Verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Now, this is understandably so. We we opened with this question. It's why we looked at the nature of who Jesus was when he resurrected. But also this is human nature. You know, I've been at many Christian memorial services for, even for the deceased saints, but nobody ever voices, well, gee, that's how he looked here. I wonder how he looked whenever he resurrects. 
Because we're so familiar with death. We're so familiar with the fact that when people die, they don't move. We don't see them um, after we bury them, and we don't expect to see them. And if we do see them, we probably wet our pants. Sure, we can have an abstract belief about that we will see them, but we're most familiar and intimate with them dead. Paul is about to challenge us to think differently. He's going to be a little bit abrasive. If we're truly Christian, he grabs the Corinthian Christians by the proverbial collar in some ways, and he says in verse 36 up here, You fool! (laughs) What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. Now, I know this is hard for all of you to grasp out here in farm country, but uh, whenever Frank and Matt are planting over on those fields across from my house in the church, what I don't see them is trying to stick full-size wheat and barley and push them down into the ground. No, they don't sow plants. Oddly enough, they sow seeds. Verse 38 But God gives it a body as He wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Now this is interesting. The idea behind God gives is that it's a verb in the present tense, meaning that God continually exercises power over the whole process. I'm sure some of you can give me the science behind the process of planting, the water needed, the process of the blooming, the year, the seasons, just as I could tell you that I made my sermon today, this week, but what I didn't tell you is how I studied such and such sources, and I typed on my keyboard, and I made my slideshow, and I did it all on a computer. However, that's the science of it all, what what actually my computer did a lot of work, if you will, but you know that I'm responsible for the whole process, just as God is responsible for the whole process over me, and God is responsible for the whole process from the seeds to the blooming. Verse 39, not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. Now, what Paul is doing now is just basic understanding that we can all observe the flesh or the bodies of different objects, whether they be people or animals or planets and so forth, they're all different. And Paul's leading up to a point, verse 42. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You know, I think you know this. An apple seed looks really different from an apple tree. <laughs> in fact, if I knew nothing of how apple trees formed and were made, and you showed me a seed of an apple tree, and then you showed me an apple tree, and you asked me what they had in common, if I was uneducated and I had no clue, they look in like entirely two different objects, and certainly that huge tree wouldn't come out of that tiny little seed. Meanwhile, it seems, from what we read of Scripture, the difference between us now and our, and then our resurrected bodies, while they are noteworthily different, which is why we will note it, perhaps it isn't as dramatic as a seed versus a tree. What are the differences? Paul 
has basically just referred to the curses of the fall that are lifted when it comes to what he calls the natural body versus the spiritual body. First, he talks about a matter of corruption and incorruption. The ESV or the NIV would use perishable versus imperishable. Our bodies right now have an expiration date. (laughs) Some point in time... The body is done being made, it's peaked, and it's on the process of decaying and degenerating. That will not be so in our resurrected bodies. How about dishonor versus glory? This is the subject of one of physical appearance. How many of you love looking at pictures of yourself when you were younger? (laughs) Makes me squirm, right? Wow, you mean I was once fit? (laughs) I didn't have those age marks? Our resurrected bodies will be raised in glory, no blemishes. Thirdly, sown in weakness, raised in power. This is the vitality or the ability. I've told some of you that if I've had half, maybe one-third of the energy resources it seems my son has, (laughs) it seems like I would get done with my sermon a lot quicker. And then uh, the resurrection body, though, will be not be one that has need or want of strength. It will be raised in power. How about this talk of natural and spiritual body? It seems like the English may easily slip us up here. Is Paul making a differentiation between natural as in physical skin, flesh, and bones, and then nature, or spiritual, I should say, again, with what we might think of as ghostly or translucent? Well... The context of the entire Bible, and this book in particular, may point us a different direction. Again, as I open with, if we are to take Jesus as the first fruits of our body, the Gospel accounts gives us a picture of a resurrected body, and Jesus at least, that is flesh, bones, tangible, wants to eat, and has other admittedly supernatural, or not what we're familiar with, abilities. And again, it operates rather well in our realm, if you will, not some otherworldly realm. And the Bible says there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Secondly, Paul uses this dichotomy of natural and spiritual in the book of 1 Corinthians elsewhere. He's not referring to bodies per se, but he's referring to sinful versus saved. Or not believing versus believing. Sinners still under the fall versus saint under grace. Because this dichotomy is hard, the CSB did take liberties in 1 Corinthians 2, and they translated it dynamically. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the CSB says, But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it, since it is evaluated spiritually. Then across the page up here on the slideshow, the ESV, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then contrast that with the next verse. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything. Now, what I'm saying is Paul has established this dichotomy in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person, the person without the Spirit of God, the unregenerate, the unsaved, whereas the spiritual person, one who is a believer, is saved, is reborn, well, then it's not too much of a stretch of imagination to think that Paul is using the language similarly in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul does seem to imply in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are all sown naturally. I'm still corruptible. 
I'm looking a little bit more dishonorably every day, and I'm still weak every day while aging. Natural and spiritual then become terms of origin. See, I was born through a man and woman just like anybody else, but what happens when we're saved? Jesus says we're reborn. Some people argue about that uh, term born again in John 3, and some say, no, it means born from above or born of the Spirit. So I think all of those could be fairly well accurate. Born of the Spirit. You hear that? That's a spiritual origin. That's what Paul is saying as he closes out our study. study. He says in verse 45, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, this is Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Do you hear the reversal? Adam received the breath of God. Some actually translate that word for breath also as spirit. They receive the breath of God. But Jesus, the last Adam, he imparts, he gives life. He gives his spirit. He breathes out the breath of life to others to give them new life. Verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. That's what I just talked about. Being born naturally once. And then born again of the Spirit, originating in the Spirit. Verse 47, the first man was from earth, a man of death, dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Some theologians, since we like to come up with terms, call this federal headship. Adam represents all of humanity. He's of the earth. He's of the dust. And when we move from sinner to saint, from unregenerate to regenerate, from not believing to believing, we come under the federal headship of the second Adam, Jesus. And we talked about this in our first Advent series, that while we have the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the soul, the inner life, we are told that the Holy Spirit is the down payment. Uh, a prelude of a greater resurrection, the resurrection that Paul's talking about here. We still image the man of dust. I'm still corruptible, dishonorable looking, and weak. But what the promise here is in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Christ's resurrection was just the first fruits. But after verse 23, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We resurrect also. What this means should bring great hope, friends. Because if you know that you're engaging in the things of God, seeking His kingdom and sensing the Holy Spirit working in you, it means that you have received the down payment. It means that where you're at now is not where God will leave you. But as Paul says in another letter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That there will come a day when you and I will not only have the resurrected spiritual life, but resurrected bodies to go with it. Incorruptible, glorious, and powerful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we base our hope on things we cannot see. We live in a a natural, physical world. We... We see lots of things happening around us. We see 
lots of things we may not like to see happening in the mirror at times. But Father, you've given us a promise. But not only have you given us a promise through word to just take on faith, you've given us the down payment through the Holy Spirit saying this is evidence that I am promising to do more in your life, to do more than just what's on the inside you of you, but to do more on the outside as well. Father, we are we take great hope that whenever you do return and you bring this era to an end, that you promise resurrection to all of us. And what a great promise it is and what a fascinating thing to see your son Jesus in the gospel accounts as he walked around resurrected, who he was and how he acted and what things he could do. And it seems that that is the promise that you are going to impart to us. Father, we thank you for this promise. We ask that it would now embolden our lives to see other people added to your kingdom, to be recipients of the promise and the inheritance. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask and we pray all this in your name. Amen.